Warning, the following podcast has been classified as insanely lucrative. Listener discretion is advised. Um, earlier, Jameson, you were talking about how you started with just a small amount of money and now you're on pace. I mean, you're doing uh, six figures, right? How did you get from that level? I mean, were you just putting all of your profits in nonstop? I'm curious how someone does that. Your attention, please, please. Listening to the AMPM podcast may cause recurring revenue streams and unfair, unfair advantages over your competitors. Other side effects may include better wallets, fired bosses, and longer vacations. Listen at your own risk. Here's your host, seven-figure entrepreneur and online marketing madman, Manny Coates. Manny Coates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AMPM podcast. My name is Manny Coates, and I will be your host. This is the show where we discuss how to generate recurring revenue streams 24 hours per day during the AM and the PM, hence the name of the show. As a matter of fact, I just got back from watching a comedy show over here at the Improv, and while I was doing that, eating a big, fat, juicy burger at the same time, I was making money. How cool is that? Pretty cool, I think. So, we have something a little bit different today. We decided to do a video, or sorry, a uh, Google Hangout, so it's with video, uh, with a few people. So it was me, Guillermo, Steve Rakin, and Jameson Filippi. I always get his name wrong. Filippi. Filippi. (laughs) Forgive me, Jameson. I could edit this out, but I'm not going to. But uh, anyways, it's pretty cool because these guys are just wizards at uh, retail arbitrage. Okay, And that's something that I don't teach on our podcast. And they're going to talk about retail arbitrage, the difference between uh, doing retail arbitrage with Amazon FBA versus doing private label with Amazon FBA. So it's pretty cool. It runs a little long, but it's awesome information. It's longer than our normal podcast is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but if you're interested in potentially getting into the private label game and you just don't have the capital to do so, then retail arbitrage might be a really good way to actually get started, okay, to, to build that initial seed money. So take a listen and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. So guys, something special today. Um, there's four of us in this hangout, and it's uh, Steve Rakin from Rakin Profit. We had Jameson Filippi and Filippi, sorry, and then uh, Guillermo Pio and myself from AMPM Podcast. And we're going to be doing a uh, just kind of a hangout, just a, a, a freestyle chat about retail arbitrage, private label, anything related to Amazon. I think we're going to be jumping back and forth. And I'm going to say it right now: I'm not a retail arbitrage expert. Um, we've got two guys that are, and actually maybe even three. I, Guillermo says he's not, but he's going to be leading this thing. And uh, I, I think you've got some good questions uh, to ask these guys. So before we get started, though, um, Jameson and, and Steve, would you guys like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Ahead, yeah, Steve. sure. Yeah, I'll get started. What's going on, everybody? Uh, first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, my name's Steve Rakin, and uh, I'm 28 years old from Connecticut, Quit my job at the restaurant about three years ago. Was working in you know various restaurants, pizzerias, and whatnot, and finally stumbled across making money online. Started uh, flipping bikes on Craigslist. Moved on to eBay. Um, ended up starting a YouTube channel, which I now have about 
700 videos, I think, and uh, eventually moved on to Amazon FBA where uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, retail arbitrage, uh, sourcing a lot from garage sales, thrift stores, pawn shops, and I'm actually getting into private label, which is really exciting because I've been learning a lot from Guillermo and Manny, and uh, I've actually just got confirmation that my first sample is on the way from Hong Kong, so that's super, super exciting. Uh, but yeah, been doing this for about three years, haven't had an official job in three years, and I uh, love every minute of being an entrepreneur and always learning new things and just super pumped up for uh, this podcast uh, with all you guys and my main man, Jameson. So uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. I'll pass it off to Jameson. Cool. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, Jameson Philippi here. Um, I'm 33 from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I've been, uh, gosh, I actually started doing this. Uh, I got fired from my job like five years ago. I was a waiter at Buffalo Wild Wings and I got fired for texting. And after I got fired, I was kind of like, I kind of drifted for a little bit. But after that, I was just kind of like, I don't want to work for anybody else ever again. Like, and I pretty much like got into reselling eBay. And then I actually, I, I stumbled upon Steve and bought his clothing book, which opened the door to other things and which kind of like led me down this direction where I'm at now. Um, I started retail arbitrage with 200 bucks in my pocket. And um, I'm on pace, that was a year and a half ago and I'm on pace this year to do about a half a million in sales this year, um, just strictly RA um, with no private label. Um, I'm in the process of ordering my samples right now and talks with China right now to get a few samples. Um, and I've just been driving around the country, sourcing, doing uh, retail arbitrage and periscoping along the way. Loving every minute of it. Awesome. That's amazing, huh? 250K from retail arbitrage. That shows, shows some real, real hassle, huh? I don't, I don't think that's, that's something a lot of people can claim. Retail arbitrage, that kind of sales. Yeah, definitely, problem. definitely. And Actually, you, you were just, Jameson, you just got in like just a couple minutes ago because you were out hunting for those, uh, you, I think you just said you had a really awesome score. Yeah, yeah, I actually went out just to get a juice this morning. I, I, I juice at Whole Foods every morning and there was a Rite Aid next door and I was like, oh, I'll just pop in real quick because I got a 20% off card or whatever and they had like 100 clearance video games in there and I picked up like 25 of them, probably made like 400 bucks profit easy <laughs> and I just came, came back. So it's a nice little score, start the day off. Nice. So I, I know that uh, everybody on your channels, uh, on the retail arbitrage side, they know exactly what retail arbitrage is. Um, Guy, I think some of the people on our side might not know what RA is. Um, and I guess a real quick, you know, few sentences, you guys want to talk about exactly what it is and the difference between that and private label? Yeah, Jameson, you want to take that one? Um, yeah. Retail arbitrage basically is like where you go to Target, Walmart, and other various big box stores, and you pick up, you know, rent, like say we'll say toys, for example, um, scan them with the Amazon seller app, and then you send them into Amazon, and Amazon takes care of everything. They sell it, they ship it, they deal with customer complaints, returns, um, any hassle the customer has. Anytime you get a customer mes message, like a complaint of any sort, just send them to Amazon. Amazon takes care of everything. And pretty much you don't have to hold any inventory on hand, and you pretty much just collect your payment every two weeks. Um, I guess in a nutshell, I guess that's what RA is, I guess. And that's, that's the retail side of things, too. Um, I know both of us, we do a lot of sourcing from thrift stores and garage sales and pawn shops. And it's pretty similar to retail arbitrage. The only difference is uh, usually with retail arbitrage, you could pick up multiple uh, quantities of, a, of an item, whereas like when I go into a pawn shop to buy something, typically I'm buying like a one-off item, and uh, I guess that's, you know, to get into it a little sooner, 
that's one of the downsides to doing what we do because, you know, especially from, you know, the pawn shop side, the thrift store side, garage sale side, we have to go out there actively and hustle, which is nothing wrong with that. We have to go out there and actively hustle to find that item. But once we sell it, um, it's gone and we have to go back out again to uh, find another one. Yeah. yeah. When I was doing uh, retail arbitrage, to me, that was one of the exciting parts because if I went to garage sales or to, to the thrift shop, it was almost like a treasure hunt. You know, uh, it was always looking looking for for that one treasure, that 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 cool thing that I've never seen before, and like, oh my god, this this looks so cool. But then <laughs> I got really good at buying, and I was never listing. So I have I will tell you, Steve, that I have a inventory room full of full of stuff that I'm sure is worth a few thousand dollars, and I just haven't listed the stuff. So it's. It's it's a lot of a lot of work, a lot of hustling, and and finding the next thing. There's um, there's a lot of, of people that do retail arbitrage with replenishables. Do you guys do any any kind of replenishables? I don't have many of them. Um, I've got a few uh, kind of items that I'm on the lookout for that I replenish. Um, but I think Jameson might have more than I do. I've got probably twenty to thirty replens. Um, and they vary in every single category, like baby items, you know, like laundry detergents, clothing, toys. It, it, it's all over the board. I like to spread it around. Um, I actually read online that I'm actually I'm trying to get my replens up. Um, to make a good income just off your replens, if you have 80 replens, you could actually make a living off of that just doing those 80 replens. So that's my goal is to get up to 80 replens, and I'm building that every day pretty much just learning and you know, researching new products that I can go, and I just go down like a Walmart aisle and just scan all the grocery items because I think those are the best replens, in my opinion, to go after. And we talked about that before, Jameson. Um, I remember how you told me how you had a notebook, and you would go all around the Walmarts and Targets, and you would literally scan through all the different items, and when you found an item that had potential, you'd write it down in your notebook, and if it sold, you literally go back and just scroll through your notebook and find that item again, which was a really good tip you, you gave me. So uh, for the people listening, if you're looking to you know make some cash doing the replens and the arbitrage, make sure to take note of the items that are selling so you don't forget about it because it's, it's a little overwhelming. There's so many products that are out there. Um, you've really got to stay organized in terms of you know what you want to be on the lookout for or else you could get sidetracked quite easily. So guys, I have a question then. If for, for a private label, when I'm actually sourcing new things, I'm looking for something that when I sell it after cost, I can make at least ten dollars um, or twenty-five percent of whatever I'm selling it for, whichever is greater. Uh, now, I don't always do that, but that's kind of like the the baseline that I, I start with. Um, with retail arbitrage, how do you how do you factor in profit? How does that work? Uh, where do you guys normally fall? I mean, how do you how do you know when something is is worth picking up at uh, you know at a store? Um, uh, me and Steve, I both use the uh, the Amazon seller app to scan the items, and then it'll pop up with what the price, the going rate is for that item. Um, I, I generally like to stick with 50% margins, um, and I go for like, say, for toys example, I go for like under 50k in toys, which is a pretty quick flip. You'll probably get paid, get the money back within two weeks, because I like to flip my stuff every two to three weeks. Burn and turn is like my model that I live by for when I go for stuff. Yeah, when you're when you're using the Amazon Seller app, which is the uh, the free app that we use, when we scan an item, you'll see all the different prices and whatnot. So let's say, for example, you pick up a toy that's selling for thirty dollars. 
it'll actually give you how much you'll get back after fees. So let's just say Amazon takes $7 in fees. So now you're down to $23. And you could actually put in shipping costs and, and, and different various things into the settings to shoot out what you'll get back after the fees and all. So say it's $7 in fees and it's selling for 30 Now you're down to $20. Three dollars. Now you have to factor in how much your buy cost is. So if the buy cost is uh, three dollars, now you've got twenty bucks left. So it's it's going to vary based on your risk tolerance and what you're looking to uh, put out in terms of how much you want to spend to get back. But yeah, I'm usually looking at around a fifty uh, percent to a hundred percent ROI. It really depends, though. I mean, I sell a lot of different items from books to video games to new in the box items to electronics so it's really going to vary uh, based on the item like for example electronics usually I'm looking for well over a hundred percent return on investment just because they're a little riskier in terms of returns and just issues and just a, a lot of different factors so I think it really depends based on the actual product that the person's looking to buy and their risk tolerance okay got it. is there a, a dollar limit like a minimum like you say you know what I'll get a hundred percent return on this investment but it's only four dollars I mean, do you even deal with that, or do you always stick to a certain price point? Well, they're going to take out their, their their minimum fee, so I think if you sell anything for less than like five or six bucks, I don't think you're going to get much back. What are your thoughts on right. that? No, that's not what I meant. I meant, uh, for example, after the fees, if you're only making five bucks after everything's said and done, is that something worth picking up, or are you looking for stuff where you can make you know, a lot more than that? Yeah, I, I do it. I have no problem taking that. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll do it all day long as well, especially for books, because um, I do a lot of books as well. I mean, books are super simple. I mean, you just slap a label on it and you send it in. There's really no prep or anything. So, you know, even there'll be times where, um, you know, I'll scan a book. If I pay a dollar and I make three bucks profit, I'll do it because I know if I could get 30 or 40 of them at a place, you know, that's $100, $150 profit and it's only going to take me. 20 or 30 minutes to send them off through uh, my third-party platform uh, software that I use, Inventory Lab. So it really depends based on the item. Now, if it's a bigger item where it's going to take a lot of prep, you know, bubble wrap, stretch wrapping it, you know, putting it into another box and all that, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna waste my time for a five-dollar profit because you got to weigh out what your time is worth. So uh, for the people listening, I mean, I know a lot of folks that are listening to your podcast, they're in the private label. But one of the real big benefits to the the retail arbitrage is you can get quick cash. You could you could get the cash to be able to save up for that private label uh, venture and whatnot. And um, just based on the product you're going into, you can make some really quick cash and save up some money uh, for for other ventures. Yeah, the the ROI that you can see on on retail arbitrage is insane. Uh, and not so much in retail arbitrage, but in thrifting and going to garage sales. I've, I've seen some crazy things like, I remember um, one time I bought, I went to a garage sale, I think, it, well, it may have been a state sale or, or they were moving out of the country, I'm, I'm not sure. But it was basically everything but the house for sale. And I'll go in the garage and I see these metal box that everybody's ignoring. And I grab it and I open and it was a, a controller for a sprinkler system. And he had a ten dollar prize on it. I'm like, this cannot be ten bucks. So I, I quickly went into eBay in the eBay app. I look at the solds, and they were selling for like three hundred and thirty bucks. Oh, wow. so I'm like, nice. <laughs> so I, I, I grabbed it, and that was a, a quick flip. And I think I got a, a best offer for maybe around two fifty or so. It it wasn't fast, of course, because. 
it took a while, um, maybe two months, three months for it to sell, but it sold for, for like 250 and I, I spent the bucks. So the ROI that you can see is really good as long as you're not putting way too much time because it's you, you definitely have to value your time. Like Steve was saying, if not, if you're just picking up, I, and I made this mistake too. I, I went to garage sales and started seeing all kinds of things that, oh, I, I can, I can, make $10 on this, $5 on this, but they were one-offs. So yeah, I can double my money or triple my money. Well, yeah, but it's five bucks and it's like, I have to take the time to list it and everything. So that that was, I think that's where where I went wrong most of the time with, uh, with retail arbitrage is that at the beginning, I just saw the multiplier, but I didn't figure in how much time is actually gonna take me. Uh, I think I showed you, Jameson, the the picture of the garage, <laughs> garage, literally a garage full of books. So I, I went in, I I saw on eBay, eBay local, somebody was selling selling books uh, by the by the box. So I was like, okay, he's selling books by the box, five bucks a box of books. I was like, so I messaged him. I was like, hey, I, how many boxes do you have? And he's like, how many do you want? And he sends me a picture. And he had a warehouse. Wow. He was the reseller also, and he he had a huge warehouse. And he's like, I've I've gone. Uh, I he was going to auctions, uh, storage storage auctions. Mm -hmm. So he would buy these whole storages. And this was a bookstore that got shut shut down for some reason. And it was basically all the inventory. So I bought that. Entire thing that poor U-Haul uh, truck was asking for forgiveness when I was <laughs> taking. Like, I gave my brother-in-law. Uh, I think it was a hundred bucks to help me load those things, and the U-Haul truck was going down. I think like, <laughs> it was crazy, man. Then I get home and I put some pallets in the garage, and I hadn't told my wife how how much oh, I was buying. <laughs> so my wife walks into the garage and like. Oh my gosh! Where are we gonna park? He's like, not here. <laughs> <laughs> You're not lying either. That thing was like what nine feet tall by twelve feet wide or something. It was, it was literally half a garage full of books and a two-car garage. The one car, the whole entire space. And but I completely underestimated how much time it would take me to process all those books. I'm talking about it would, must have been over ten thousand books. So I tried for like a week and I'm like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And I listed the whole lot and I flipped it for around two and a half to three times the money. Mm -hmm. So I still doubled my money, but I would have, I would have made a lot more money had I invested time or had I had maybe a team of people doing it. But yeah, those, those are the kind of fun where stories. Were, where were you listing the items? Was it on Amazon? That was at Amazon, yeah. Let me, I hope you were doing FBA and you weren't merchant fulfilling it. I was doing FBA. I was just, <laughs> I, I, I went online, I bought a, one of those scanning guns, the, the yeah. scanners. I plugged it in, USB scanner, and I look, 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 uh, <laughs> scanning into inventory lab. But I was very, very particular about making sure that they're perfectly described. If, like I would go through each one of the pages making sure that there's no, no, no lines or anything. Maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I was too thorough. And then I bagged. Uh, first I, first I bagged each book. Then I bought a, a heat, a heat sealer, and I was heat sealing every <laughs> single book. 
So I think I overdid it a lot because after after the fact, I've seen videos of people that just love the label, the the effing skill on the <laughs> the effing skill on the on the book, and they ship it off that way. So. That's crazy. So I, I got a question. Um, earlier, Jameson, you were talking about how you started with just a small amount of money, and now you're on pace. I mean, you're doing uh, six figures, right? Yeah. So how do how does somebody go? That's getting into this. How did they get from that level? I mean, were you just putting all of your profits in nonstop, or and how were you living? If you're doing that, I'm curious how someone does that. Um, it was really, really tough in the beginning. Because um, when I started, uh, it was like July of 2014. There wasn't videos there wasn't podcasts there wasn't really many books out there wasn't like no info there wasn't much information on FBA then mm -hmm. there was vague videos that would like answer one out of a hundred questions but there wasn't all this information it is so easy to start now so I pretty much trialed and aired everything I went in all the Facebook groups all the free ones tried to get information nobody was helpful nobody was everybody was really rude um, not everybody, but a good portion of people were rude enough where I stopped commenting. I was even to the point where, hey, I'll pay you. Teach me how to do this. Nobody would help. Um, and then I stumbled upon the, the green room, and it was like 100 bucks to join. And at that time, I didn't even have $100. Like, I was like selling on eBay, making maybe 1000 bucks profit a month, which that's what I was living on also. Uh, my bills, I think, were about 600 a month for everything. And then I was living off of like 50 bucks a week food cutting my own hair, like not Netflix, nothing. Like I was like just biting, like grinding it. And then I found out about FBA through the green room. Um, I had, I put 200 bucks into it. Um, I made the mistake of buying one of those bolo lists in the beginning. Worst mistake I've ever done. Um, my opinion, most of the bolo lists aren't worth buying. Um, I think a bolo list is only as good as the people that are using it. But uh, I guess long story short, um, I just kept flipping my money, um, you know, the burn and turn thing. I just thought, you know, I get paid on Monday. All right, I want to have my money spent by Tuesday. I want to have everything shipped out by Wednesday. And I just kept doing that for like a year and a half, just learning and networking and um, just networking with tons of people. And then I fast forward a year and a half later, I'm going to do a half a million in sales this year, um, probably even more. Um, I mean, that's without private label. I plan on having private label products before the end of the year. Nice. And uh, the six-figure profit after that just from $200 investment. And do you plan on phasing out of retail arbitrage once you get private label going? Um, I'm going to wing it. Possibly not fully. I do enjoy it. I do, I do enjoy the aspect of it and meeting other hustlers and resellers because I know that's what most everybody does. But I'll probably slowly phase it out. I probably will never quit it completely. But I'll probably switch over to private label more because I want to be more somewhat passive-ish, you know, as far as making income and stuff. And that bargain hunting, that going out there and actually finding those gems, that's got to be addicting, right? That's got to be, you know, I, I mean, even because I, I think about it, I'm like, well, I'm happy. You know, my revenue streams are really good, but I'm like, that would be kind of exciting to go out there and find something like, ah, I bought, you know, I bought this thing for 10 bucks. It's worth a hundred bucks. So it's, it's, definitely rush. it's definitely a rush. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. My kids hate me because uh, from those times that I was doing retail arbitrage, we would go out in the morning and I'd be like, garage sale! And they would, they would know, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, we wouldn't be sourcing. I would say garage sale and I'd pull over. And my wife and kids would be in the car for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And my kids are like, no, no more garage sale. <laughs> so, yeah, it gets addicting for sure. Cool. So, and same, uh, same question for you, man. Uh, once you get your private label going, is the plan to phase out of 
arbitrage or also keep it in the mix? Well, I'm not totally sure um, what's going to be happening. Right now, my, my main game plan is I've, I've got quite a few different uh, revenue streams, and I enjoy having multiple revenue streams. I, I feel like it helps to um, minimize the risk, and it helps to keep the money flowing in when, when certain uh, revenue streams kind of go through peaks and valleys and whatnot, just like er just like any uh, business and whatnot. Uh, but for the time being, really what I'm doing is I'm using Amazon FBA to help pay bills and maintain um, my lifestyle and whatnot and to be able to save money to be able to fund my private label project. So I don't think I'm ever going to phase out of it completely because just because like Jameson, I, I actually really enjoy it. And um, I also run a membership group as well, which Jameson referred to the green room, uh, which I run alongside with three other guys. So um, we, we help a lot of people and we teach a lot and uh, we enjoy interacting with people. So I don't think I'm ever going to phase out of it completely. Uh, but kind of like Jameson said, it's, it's good to have that. I hate to I hate to use the word passive, right? Because I feel like that word's thrown around way too much, and uh, I don't think anything's ever completely passive until maybe you put enough systems and processes in place. Um, but I'm excited to have another revenue stream, and I'm working on it, uh, the private label on the side. And I was just talking to somebody the other day about this. I said, listen, I mean, it's good to be you know doing what you're doing, whether you're selling on eBay or Amazon. But it's always good to have a project on the side that you're building up that could be sustainable for the long term and something you could scale. I think that's really the key with private label is the scalability. Um, not to say you can't scale with retail arbitrage and thrifting and whatnot, uh, but it's just a different game. And I think it's a lot easier to scale um, just based on how the private label game is pretty much put together. So to make a long story short, I don't think I'm ever going to phase out of it um, within the next few years at least. Cool. Yeah, and it's so cool to to be talking to you, man, because when I was starting with Retail Arbitrage, you were definitely one of the channels that I subscribed to and learned a lot from. I, I learned tons from, from you. So it, it's so cool that through the podcast, you're, you're getting a little bit of value back. So that, that, that actually, I mean, what goes around comes around. You're putting so much content out there on, on your on your channel, you, Jameson, with the, with the Periscope, it, it's cool that now we're able to share. Like you said, Jameson, at the beginning, there was nobody sharing this stuff, and everybody had to kind of wing it. And now there's so much free information out there. I think I think a lot of people maybe not realize how lucky they are with, mm -hmm. with, with all these exactly. resources. There's no excuse anymore. If you want to learn how to sell on Amazon or do arbitrage or private label, there really is no excuse with the internet. I mean, we, we literally are like smack in the middle of the information age. Like it is so easy to get information. Um, the problem is that the challenge that most people have is, all right, there's all this information out here, right? I'm learning from this podcast, from this Facebook group, from this YouTube video. What information actually works? And uh, I, I feel like it's very easy for people to learn and to absorb information, right? It's so easy to listen. Like there's people watching right now, they're listening. They're like, I want to get into retail arbitrage. I want to get into private label. Like this is awesome. But the challenge is taking that information and actually taking action on it. And I, I something I've dealt with and had a challenge with before, I don't know if you guys have ever had that challenge where you learn something and, and you're like, okay, well, what what do I do? Yeah. I think I just actually did a uh... – a video yesterday we were doing some uh, a special project and um, one of the big things that I'm seeing out there is there and Guy, Guy and I talk about this all the time 
there's a ton of training material, just like you said, on all these different social media uh, platforms and courses and so forth. But there's, at least with private label, there's a lot of misinformation, okay? Because the stuff that people are teaching is rehashed, right? It, it's old, you know, it's stuff that's uh, a year old, a year and a half old. And a lot of it, I mean, it works to some extent, but a lot of it doesn't, right? You do, if you follow what they teach, it doesn't really get you anywhere. Um, is it kind of like that with uh, the training that's out there with retail arbitrage, would you say? Um, I would say yes and no, but lean more towards no-ish. Um, I don't know. It seems like retail arbitrage is so easy to learn. I don't know anything about private label, so I can't touch on that. But it's like, I guess it's stuff that you learn, like say somebody made a, a retail arbitrage video a year ago. A lot of that info, if, it's, mm. if it was decent info then, it should be relevant now. Because, I mean, it is simple to a sense you just point and scan um, obviously there's a lot that goes in a little bit more that goes into it but it is so simple to start it's so easy to start but like to scale up it probably gets a little bit tougher because people just different aspects of it but I think the retail arbitrage information is pretty relevant now as it was you know a year ago yeah I think with private label you just got so many more moving parts you know you got to make yeah. sure because you're setting up the listings you got to make sure the titles and the bullets and the back end keywords and everything looks solid and the images and there's certain things that you can do where if you don't do the title just right, you do one little tweak, um, your sales get cut by two thirds, you know, and you're like, ah, and, and a lot of people are teaching specific things that, for example, I don't agree with, and then they're wondering why they're only doing two sales a week versus, you know, where they should be. But uh, so, so that's good to know, actually, about the, about the RI side. Um, would you guys say that, is it, a lot of people uh, on the group and actually, uh, private comments to myself, they asked, you know, do you think it's too crowded out there? You know, is it getting, is Amazon getting too, too crowded, too busy? What are your thoughts on this? I, I don't think it's getting too crowded. I, I do agree that there's a lot more people coming in, uh, especially for the lower barrier types of um, stuff, like especially like scanning books and stuff. I remember two years ago, I would go into bookstores, savers, um, Goodwills and stuff, and I would never, ever, ever see anybody scanning a book. Like literally, if I went into a hundred thrift stores, I might see one or two people ever scanning. Because think about it, people are coming in at different times of the day. So really, what are the odds of you bumping into somebody? Right? There's these stores are open for like 15 hours a day. Um, but now I'll go out every single time I'm out. Like 90% of the time, I see somebody out there scanning. Um, it might just be where I live. I'm from Connecticut, um, so maybe if you're in like a a less populated area, maybe you don't, but I see a lot more people uh, doing the lower barrier types of entry stuff, um, like scanning books, because it's so easy. Um, so I think there's a lot more people coming into the market. I know for a fact with the books, because I'm a big bookseller, it's about 30% of my income on FBA is selling books. Um, there's a lot more sellers, and the, the prices are getting cut down a lot faster, and there's a lot more sellers doing really, I hate to use the word stupid, but just really doing stupid things because they just don't understand how to price. There's a lot of price wars going on. They've got repricers that their settings are just chopping the price down instantly, and it's like literally you have like a book that's ranked like 10,000. It's selling like who knows, 10, 20 times a day. I'm just throwing out a random number. I don't know. And they're like, the, 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 the lowest price is like 40 bucks, and they're coming in at like $3 or like $4. And it's like, I just feel like there's a lot more people coming in for the lower, like the easier to get in the game types of deals. Um, 
I, I feel like the opportunity, if you're going to be doing the arbitrage, is probably doing like more of the retail arbitrage stuff, doing bundles, creating your own listings, um, doing things that are a little more difficult. I feel like the easier it is, like if you're just scanning it and sending it in, there's going to be a lot more people coming in. I feel like in the next two or three years, the competitions are going to probably 10 to 20 fold just because it's it's just it's too easy and people are looking for ways to make money. Um, but I think there's still tons of money to be made. My, my sales are still consistent. But just like in any business, right, if you're not willing to change, I mean, look at Blockbuster, right? They weren't willing to change. They just thought their business model was going to work forever. Nothing ever works forever. I don't care what business you're doing. I don't care if it's you're doing eBay or retail arbitrage on Amazon or private label. As you guys know, private label is going to change. Everything changes. Uh, Kindle publishing, I was running, I was doing that business. Things change all the time. Businesses always change. The key is, can you adapt to it? When things change, when, when markets change, when competition comes in, are you going to continue to do the same thing? Or are you going to do different things that p other people aren't willing to do? So that's my long-winded response to that one. <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, your response goes hand-in-hand hand with kind of what we've been teaching in the podcast. If you're doing private label, you don't want to go for the product that costs $1, $2 to source because there's so many more people that will be able to afford that. But if it's a little bit more difficult, if, if your product cost is around 10, 15 bucks, if it's higher, then it's going to be a lot more difficult for people to source a good number of them. So the higher the product cost on private label, probably the better off you're going to be because there's not going to be that just that many people that are able to jump onto a similar product. Now there there will be um, I mean there's there's always going to be competition, but just the numbers, the sheer number of, of competitors out there is going to drop significantly if if you're ca being careful to separate yourself from 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 the masses. You know, there's um, I, I don't remember if we said this on a Periscope Manny or podcast, but um, you were saying, yeah, I mean, Amazon is crowded, but 99% of the people have no clue what they're doing. They're following that rehash information. So, yeah, I mean, so what if it's crowded? I mean, just stay ahead of the pack. Yeah, I agree. I There's a lot of people that are saying, oh, man, it's getting crazy crowded. And, um, you know, just like Steve said, you have to adjust. You have to change. You know, a year ago, you could come in. You could buy products, you know, you go to China and you buy stuff at, you know, 70 cents a piece, okay? You turn around and you're selling it for $19 and you're just crushing it. You're making a, a killing. But now there's so many people that go in and they got, you know, they're starting with 500 bucks. That's their starting capital. And they're like, okay, what can I actually get into and actually get inventory that will last me a little while? If you have 500 bucks and you've got to pay for shipping and everything else, it's not like you can go out and buy those $10 products. You've got to find, you got to source those things that are a dollar or less. It's going to call you, maybe, it's going to cost you maybe a dollar per unit to get it out here anyway. So that's doubling your cost, right? And by the time they get out here, now there's a ton of people selling this thing. And now we get into what Steve was just talking about. It's a price war to the bottom because now somebody sees, well, this guy's got it for $19.99. It was cheap. I'll, I'll put it for 18. The next guy does it 17, 16, 15. And eventually, you know, there's no profit to be made. You're making a dollar, $2. You're making nothing. And it just sucks. You know, it's just terrible. One thing that I really like about private label that is like really attracted me to private label is there's ways that you can differentiate yourself and outdo or beat out the competition. Like for example, when you're doing retail arbitrage, 
the only thing you can really do to compete with the next guy is have a lower price. I mean, let's think about it. Yeah, having good feedback is good and writing a good little description. Yeah, this item's in good condition, fast shipping, that helps. But how can you really compete with the next seller? I mean, for example, if I buy a specific textbook, I'm hopping on somebody's listing, right? And there's 10 or 15 other people. How do I differentiate myself from the other person? Yeah, maybe if my book's in better condition, that helps. But really, people are going to go for the lowest price. So it's kind of hard to separate yourself from the crowd. Whereas with private label, the thing I really like about that is you can create your own listing in terms of like having better pictures. You could beat them out with the price. You could beat them out with your entire listing. You could have more reviews. You could add a bundle. You can add an ebook. You could do something to differentiate yourself and compete. You could run PPC. Um, so that's what like gets me excited about private label. I don't know what your thoughts are on about that. And Jameson, I'm interested to hear what you think about it too. But like you can beat out the, the competition differently versus just having to cut your price down. I agree 1,000%. That's, that's one reason why I'm looking at other avenues to make money is because, you know, like you said, like a year ago I send in, you know, a toy. That price is either going to go up or probably maintain the same. If I send a toy in now, I could be losing money in three days by the time it gets there because there's 10,000 other sellers selling that exact same toy. And then I try, I'm trying to beat them out with volume because, you know, most of these sellers obviously are probably newer, might only have a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand to spend. So I, I was trying to beat these guys out in volume. And with these repricer wars going on, it's it's almost impossible in some items. Like toys is so saturated right now that, you know, I, it's like almost not worth getting into. But like unless you find the few good items, mm. the few rare items, but... I'm in the process of getting into different categories and slowly just trying to whole, find a whole new way to make money at this because my, I was like, you know, I, I usually don't shoot out numbers much, but my profits were like, you know, in the six figures every month this year. And this month, my profits like just out of nowhere shot down completely. Like my sales are still up there, but the profits are like, have been shot by like 40% markdown because everybody, it's getting so saturated in the toy market. And that's like, was my main source of income. So I'm trying to learn new avenues. Like you said, go where the crowd is and going, stop following the herd kind of thing. What, yeah. one, one tip I have real quick is um, if you're doing arbitrage and you're doing like thrifting and stuff that Jameson and I are doing, um, one quick tip to kind of get away from the crowd is to get ungated in these categories like uh, clothing and shoes and luggage and watches and sexual wellness and um, – there's, there's quite a few others, grocery, because the masses, if you guys know how the masses operate. The masses will do whatever the easiest thing is. They don't want to go out of their way to get ungated. They don't want to have to go get invoices and send them in. Now, there are going to be a lot of hustlers out there who are willing to do that, but you're going to get away from, like, the masses, from most of the people. So you could actually go, you could go to Google and type in Amazon Get Ungated, and you'll find a link which allows you to get ungated in different categories. Right now, clothing and shoes they're instantly approving you. You just have to answer like seven or eight questions. Um, luggage, they're instantly approving you. Watches, um, I don't know if there's any other ones, Jameson. I know you're pretty good at the ungating, but get ungated in these categories. And if you're not sure what ungated means, it means there's certain categories that you're not allowed to sell in unless you get approval from Amazon. So that's a great way to be able to get away from the crowd. Yeah. Let me uh, I'm gonna add to that real fast. Um, even if you don't plan on selling in these categories, still get ungated. Like a year ago, grocery and beauty and personal care, you needed three receipts, photos, 
boom, you get approved in five minutes. Now for these same categories, you need invoices and they make it a pain to get into. So these categories that are easier to get into, like you said, luggage, clothing, shoes, even if you don't plan on selling in them, get in them anyways because in a year from now, it could be a pain in the butt to get in there and you might want to sell in those categories. You know, go to the other categories like if, um, you know, like I got ungated this this past year in Star Wars, I'm ungated in ink and those are two Good, good categories that not many people are ungated in, and so I'm focusing a lot more on ink and like Star Wars and other categories that a lot of people aren't in. So go where, like they said, go where the people aren't going. Yeah, Jameson, that's a good point because, uh, for example, Amazon's merch program. You know, when we jumped in there, you know, everybody was getting approved quickly. There was no issues, and so many people jumped on it initially. Now it's difficult for people to actually get approved. Um, exactly. I think, Steve, did you just get approved, or are you still waiting? Or? Yes, I got approved after two and a half months, baby. It's exciting, right? Yeah, it takes forever. I mean, there's, we actually wanted to do a, uh, we, we have this cool software and stuff that would actually help people with it and some training to go along with it. Guillermo and I were, uh, we put it together, and like the, Right now, is nobody can get approved for it. So even if they're interested, it's like, ah, what do I do? Yeah. Well, but yeah, going back to what you were saying, uh, Steve, a little bit earlier in terms of you know private label and, and and differentiating, one of the things that people can do is that they can actually, um, if if you're getting products sent in and they're they're low cost items, okay, and everybody's selling the product, let's say for, let's say it's 19 bucks, um, Amazon's got their set. FBA fees, right? So no matter what, that's kind of a big cost up front. Let's mm -hmm. say it's around four dollars. So whether you're selling, you know, a little piece like this or two of them, it's we're gonna, it's roughly gonna be about the same, uh, the same FBA fees because they go by weight and size. So if you can actually go out and get, like, say, two or three of these things and put them into a bundle and then bring it into Amazon FBA, your cost doesn't go up that much for yourself. The actual manufacturing costs, the shipping costs, it's all gonna be coming together. But you can now sell it for, let's say. 29 bucks, okay, and you giving, let's say, three sets instead of the one set that the other guy's giving, they're charging 20 bucks, you got three of them for 30, or for 29 bucks. People will start buying your stuff like crazy, and you make a lot more profit, and that's what we do on one of our products, we just crush it. I'm, I'm in a similar situation right now, I'm looking at a product, it's a lightweight product, I have a sample coming in, and there's probably about nine or ten other sellers who are selling the exact same thing, it's, it's, just, it's just one physical item, and it's the exact same thing. They all look the same. The listings are all pretty much similar. And I'm trying to think to myself, what can I do to differentiate myself? And uh, there's one other seller who, who's selling a bundle of two of them. And then there's one more seller who has a bundle of that one item with another kind of complementary item. So I'm trying to think to myself, what can I do to differentiate myself? And that's just a really, that's a really good tip. Um, for some reason, people are, they just copy each other and do the same exact thing. Um, yeah. Now they do, and and one of the things you're going to notice, um, are, and private label, we kind of get upset when someone jumps on our listing with retail arbitrage. You guys are always competing, so it's a normal thing. But for us, you know, you've got a product, you just sourced it, you brought it into, uh, you know, from let's say China to the U.S., and it's on there, and you spend all this time. It's your product, your product page, right? You would think, um, but then somebody jumps on there, you know, they it's called hijacking essentially, and you're like, man, they're selling my product. They, they've taken away the buy box, but what they're doing is they're selling something that looks similar to it. You know what I mean? It's there, even though you have your brand maybe stamped on your product, it's a, a process to actually get them removed off your, your listing. So that's kind of a pain. That actually just happened to me when you run out of inventory, it happens super fast, very easy, because you're not there to, to occupy that space. 
So I just had that happen yesterday for one day. Uh, somebody jumped on my listing because I ran out. It got re-inventory today. I got new inventory and I'm back on my listing. But um, yeah, you'll, you'll probably run into those things if you don't constantly have inventory in stock. Do you have to be registered with the brand registry program? Like do you have to have your brand registered through the Amazon program in order to get hijackers off of your listing? Now, everybody will teach that. They'll say, hey, if you get brand registry, you know, you're safe from hijackers. Not the case. Uh, brand registry allows you to more easily get hijackers off once they get on, but you still have to go through the process of ordering the product. Usually, you can get them off by setting a cease and desist, but at one point, I had like three hijackers in a row that were just waiting to jump on this, um, and it becomes really painful if the hijackers are, let's say, from China, and they don't want to, uh, they don't want to comply. I mean, there's not a lot you can do. Um, so you have to order the product, and for me, the product was in China, oh. so it took, you know, it's going to take three weeks for the product to get out, and then that's when you take photos and you have to go to Amazon and say, look, this is not my product because it doesn't have my logo on it, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that, and then they can remove them. So it's it's kind of a painful process. Um, it sucks, but that's the way it is. Now, if you, trade, if you get it trademarked, if you trademark your product, you got it brand registered, then things become a lot easier. That's a process. Tra trademark is forever. Hijackers are ruthless, man. Uh, one of the hijackers, remember, they sold. <laughs> you bought you bought your own product, and it was completely, completely a different thing. Like, let's say it was the bunny scratcher <laughs> product, and then what we received was a cow groomer. You know, like something <laughs> completely different, man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it was crazy. I, it was like. That? It, it yeah. can reflect that on you, on your account, because, well, no, it, does. it could reflect back on your product, not on your account. Yeah, so this is the problem with the way Amazon works, okay? When you create your product page, it's not your product page, it's Amazon's product page, right? You, you're just essentially leasing it out, right, for your <clears> product. <throat> so if someone jumps on there and they say they're selling the same thing, and they think that they're ordering a bowling ball, right, and then they get a baseball, and then they post a review saying, look at this bowling ball, it looks so crappy, it's a piece of shit, and blah, 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 right? That actually is permanently on your product page now, okay? It's not on you as a seller, it's on your product page, and if you finally get those guys kicked off, and you're back on there, you have to deal with those terrible reviews. Oh, see wow. what I mean? holy mackerel, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so the reviews are, uh, they, they get associated with the product, not with you as a seller. Okay, the ASIN, not with the F and SKU. I don't even know how you leave, like this is really bad, this is such an amateur question, but I don't even know how people leave a comp, like how do you leave a feedback on the product versus on the seller? Because I always get feedback, maybe because I'm used to retail arbitrage and I don't have my own listings, but how do you tell the difference between if you're getting the, the feedback on your seller page versus the product page? Okay, so, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was, was going to say, and you can jump in, uh, you're usually a little more thorough with some of the answers, but um, the product reviews are going to show up right on that page. The seller feedback only shows up if someone actually clicks on the seller, and then you can see their seller feedback. Um, but in terms of people leaving seller feedback, it's very rare unless you're actively going out and soliciting it. So you're using some kind of a, um, a communication system like um, Feedback Genius mm -hmm. or something like that to actually communicate with the, the customers and saying, hey, you know, will you leave me some seller feedback? Now the seller feedback, that is only for you, okay? So whoever ships it, like if, if, the, if the person gets a product and, and, the, and they're trying to get a refund because it's not what they ordered, because someone jumped on your listing, mm. and then they do a seller feedback saying, I tried to deal with the seller and he's just an a-hole and da-da-da-da, that would go 
as long as they posted a seller feedback, that would go on their, their account, not yours. But that rarely happens. People don't know. The average customer doesn't even know that seller feedback exists. They just know they see product reviews because that's what's available, and they go in and they leave a, a crappy product review. Because this is a good tip for the people who are um, doing the arbitrage and the thrift store stuff. Many times I'll get a negative feedback on my seller account saying like this product stunk or blah blah blah. You can get those removed instantly because you can't put a product like so instantly. And I didn't even know this for the longest time. Like I had like two or three negatives on my account a couple of months ago, and uh, some people in the green room were like, "Hey, listen, just you know, contact customer support, say it's a product review, and they'll instantly remove it." And uh, I feel like there's a lot of wounded warriors out there walking around with these negative feedbacks, and it's these product reviews. You could get them removed instantly. So that's that's really good insight. Yeah. If there's and any any mention of a product or any mention of the shipping process, mm. if you're doing FBA and they're mentioning shipping and handling, they're like, hey, this is FBA, and they will. What they do is they kind of cross it off and they say. Uh, this product was fulfilled by Amazon, something along those lines. So that that rating kind of still shows, but it, I don't think it counts towards your no. your star rating. I mean, it's completely crossed off. Um, and also, if they mention anything about the product, anything about the product, they have an algorithm that you press the button and boom, it's gone. Ninety-nine percent of the time, it goes away in five seconds. Yeah, for sure. So let me ask you a question, kind of switching gears, guys. And maybe if I could get both, both of you, Jameson and, and Steve, to answer this question. If you were to start out, um, let's throw in a, a small number, like 500 bucks. How, how would you spend it? Uh, I'm, I'm not looking for a bolo, YOLO bolo, but <laughs> I'm looking for the the mindset behind how would you how would you use those five hundred bucks to to grow grow a business out of it? Go ahead, Steve. Sure. Um, so if I only had five hundred dollars, I would be looking at investing in cheap items that had a high return on investment. Um, so just given with my knowledge, I'd be spending a lot of time in the thrift store doing a lot of books because there's tons of books that you could pick up for you know, 50 cents a dollar and sell them for 30, 40 dollars. So if I only had 500 dollars, my goal would be to minimize my risk as much as possible, purchase items that are really cheap that have a high return on investment that would allow me to be able to save up more money to invest in maybe riskier types of sourcing like pawn shops and retail arbitrage and, what, and whatnot. So I'd be focusing a lot on uh, thrift stores, picking up um, just random items over there for a dollar or two, mostly books. Um, but there's tons of items at the thrift store. If you're doing eBay, um, clothing is great um, in terms of uh, minimizing your risk and having high returns if you're willing to work and, and put in some, some sweat and whatnot. Um, also, I'd be spending a lot of time if I was living in a warmer climate. Right now, I couldn't do it because I'm in Connecticut. Spending a lot of time hitting the garage sales uh, because you could just find ridiculous items over there for a quarter, a dollar, five bucks, and turn it into a hundred, two hundred dollars all day long. I remember I was at a garage sale. Um, I think I was in, I don't know where I was, somewhere warm, and I found this Garmin watch, brand new in the package, and uh, she wanted like ten dollars, sold for a hundred fifty bucks. So spending a lot of time in garage sales and thrift stores. Um, maybe pawn shops a little looking at video games, but it's going to cost me more money. So that's probably the approach I would do if I was doing, uh, you know, the arbitrage. And would you favor ROI or would you favor um, 
rank so it sells faster. Yeah, that's a really good point right there. I'm glad you you mentioned that. I would definitely focus on like when I'm doing the books, I'd focus a lot on books that were ranked sub uh, 100,000 because those are going to be moving a lot quicker. Right now, my business model with books is I'll I'll go up to books that are ranked a million, two million because I don't mind spending a dollar to make 15, 20 bucks six, seven months down the road, especially since the fees are so cheap. But that's a really good point, Guillermo. I would definitely focus on faster turning items because I want to get my money out as soon as possible. And also considering that with Amazon, it's going to take at least two weeks to get my money. So I want to, I want to turn it as quick as possible to get that, that payment coming out so I can reinvest it. Cool. Hey, are there, pay, are there products out there when you guys are sourcing things that have incredibly high return rates that have basically, if you were to go into private label, you'd be like, no, I don't want to get into that category category. Cause I already have experience doing that stuff with RA. What are your thoughts, Jameson? Um, me personally, um, <clears throat> I take uh, like the reviews into factor when I'm buying items. Some people totally disagree with that and they don't care. Like if I say I find a toy for five bucks, it sells for 30 and it's got a hundred reviews and they're only two star, I might pass on it um, just because I don't want to deal with the return. I don't want to have mm -hmm. to deal with the reimbursement. I don't want to have to deal with removing a negative feedback. And and all in all, I don't want to sell a crappy product. You know, mm -hmm. um, I I generally stay above three and a half star reviews when I'm buying a product. That's just what I do. Some people totally disagree with that. But you know, like I said, you know, I don't want to have to go through the hassle of the return and then have to try to get my money back from Amazon for ten dollars. It's not worth it. It's just more of a hassle. So I just go for the quick flips. Um, I'll even go less ROI if it's a quicker flip. But yeah, I definitely think. Reviews should go into factor for sure. I'm Are glad. There some? Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Real quick, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jameson, because I, I came across a retail arbitrage item during Q4 where all the toys are flying off the shelves. I found a toy that was ranked like, it's ranked like 600, which means it's selling who knows how many times a day, like what, like 50 times a day. I don't even know. And it had like 90 reviews, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. The rank is there. It's got 90 reviews. Well, but it had one star. It was, was like. It was like I don't remember what it was, but it had 90 reviews, and every single one was a one star. And I'm like, I know it's yeah. instant return. I think I know what you're talking about. I Target. pass them. Target. Yep, Target. <laughs> and so those, those bubble things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Those things are horrible. I've never sold any of those things at all. They were good. Is there, what, is there a category that uh, a specific category, whether it's clothing or electronics or, or something like that, that has a much higher return rate uh, for you guys? Electronics for electronics sure. Electronics for sure. Definitely electronics. Higher risk though. Definitely a lot higher risk. Same with private label. I know a lot of the folks out there say stay away from the electronics. I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but uh, I'm sure the I'm sure the margins are higher with that, just like with supplements. But you've got that risk, and you've got to kind of weigh out the risk in terms of what you're willing to. I don't know what you're willing to risk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a product. I, I'm one of those guys that says stay away from electronics, and I have a product that's super simple. Literally. You know, it plugs in and it just powers like a, an LED, right, essentially. Um, so nothing major. And even with that, I get returns. You know, every single day I get returns. I do some high volume, but the returns come in. It's like the plug doesn't work or it's not, you know, it's not, it's not turning on. And so you've got to deal with that versus if it's, you know, something that's, let's say, a spatula. You know, it, it doesn't break. You know, you're, you're going to be able to reduce those, uh, those returns. So... You know, you actually, Steve, you had a, a pretty cool example on, I think it was one of your Periscope trips where you had a camera that got returned and then you had a big deal because that was an expensive product, right? Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know if it's the same example, but I got a return from a camera, and I sent it to him. I bubble wrapped it up. It was in beautiful condition. It was a nice, I think it was like a DSLR camera, just a beautiful item. And, uh, you know, you got to spend a lot of time prepping it. And they returned it, and I have it set so um, I, I, always, I always get my return sent back to me. And it was destroyed. It looked like they, like, chucked it off of a building and, like, just, like, <laughs> so... I don't know. I was going to ask you, Manny. Do you have like do you have a certain setting on that like returned like if if someone returns a widget or an item that you have, do you get it sent back to you or just destroyed or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So with my private label stuff, um, I don't I don't have anything recirculate back in the inventory. I did initially, and I noticed that there, I was down to like a, a I had a small number of units of something, and there was a defect with these things, and they kept putting it back in the inventory, inventory, inventory. And so the, the reviews, the negative reviews were starting to pile up, and it, I think mm. the same product was going out to the same person over <laughs> and over. And I'm like, oh, man, so I, I, I can't do that. So right now, yeah, I have it. I have the setting turned off. Um, stuff can get shipped back to me when I, uh, when I do that, and I can go through everything if I want to at that point. But I look at it as a cost of doing business. You know, the, if the product's costing me 10 bucks, it's not like a DSLR camera, right? Um, it's, if, if it costs me 10 bucks, it's 10 bucks. You know, I, it doesn't work. My, I try to keep my return rates really low. Mm -hmm. I try to stay out of uh, categories where the return rates would be really high. And, um, yeah, I, I don't do it. I know a lot of people do, especially if you're cash strapped, right, and you're just starting out. You're, you're like, man, I want to put these things back in. Mm -hmm. Ship them out to you. If they look good, send them back. And, Jameson, uh, did you want to jump in? I know I'm going back uh, on your $500 investment. Did you have anything to add? Yeah. For sure. Um, I agree a lot with what Steve said. Also, I would, uh, myself, I would probably capitalize on the OfferUp app. Um, I think that's an app that's still, like, new-ish. You know, like, obviously it's getting popular, but it's like you could go on there and just point, you know, like, in my home city. And then plus with me traveling so much, I can go into a different city every day, look in the OfferUp, boom, all right, got some deals here, da-da-da. And then it, there's so much money to be made on OfferUp. And, like, um, Craigslist, there's still some good deals out there. Um, I used to do full-time uh, video games, Craigslist to eBay flips. Um, that's kind of saturated with resellers. But, yeah, OfferUp, I would totally just be on that every day doing research and, like, starting with that and then going for the quick flips RA, like Steve said, and pretty much I would – Pretty much piggyback on what Steve said. Um, I would focus on the estate sales, garage sales, Friday and Saturday. And then another thing I know a lot of people, uh, this is like a, like one of those things that people say is like, oh, you know, the garage sales are only good from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. After that, don't even bother going. I don't know who made that rule or who set, like, people that follow that rule. I'll go to 3, 4, 5, 6 p.m. sometimes, and I'm still finding the same good deals. At least this is where I'm from in Minnesota. I, I can go at 3 in the afternoon or 6 in the morning. I'm still going to get the same deals. So I garage sale from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. until the garage sales go. Like once a week, you could kill it. You know, if you only had 500 bucks to start with, you could spend that in one day and probably just kill it and make a couple grand. It's because it's so cold over there in Minnesota, man. Nobody wants to go out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was doing the, the garage sales, I would get out. Like, I would be out on the road at 7 a.m. and I would get my best deals 7 a.m. to like 8.30 then it will slow down, and then towards the end, I get pe people were kind of losing face and they were not trying hard. So if I spotted something, I would get a really good deal, or I could bundle up a bunch mm -hmm. of stuff. One of the things, uh, techniques, and I don't know if I'm entitled to to give a retail arbitrage tip, but <laughs> one of the things that I that I used to do was um, I would never ask for prices on individual stuff. I would just start kind of 
grabbing the stuff, putting it together, and I would negotiate as a whole. How much for this? And I would show the entire pile of stuff that I put together because I always found uh, that people were like, oh, for all that, I don't know, 15 bucks? And they're like, are you cool with 10? All right, give me 12. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so I, I felt like every time that I didn't do that, I would end up spending more because people would be like, they would want to get as much for each individual item, whereas if you hand them a $20 bill, they're happy with it, but you're getting a lot of stuff. Do you guys see something similar? Yeah, I agree. Um, also, another good tip, too, is I like going at the end of the day. I mean, obviously, a lot of the good deals are gone, but you can negotiate a lot more towards the end of the day because if it's like Saturday, 5 p.m., and they're moving or they don't want to haul the stuff back in the house or it's going to the Goodwill after – Sometimes they'll even give you away free stuff. Like I've gone to garage sales and got like free Nintendo Wiis and free like Wii Fit boards and video games for free because they were they were going to the uh, Goodwill the next day. Um, and then also, you know, like when uh, when like I actually got this deal the other day. Um, me and Yong from the green room were uh, garage selling at like seven. It was our first garage sale. This guy had a um, a headset um, for uh, PlayStation or Xbox or whatever, and he was asking thirty dollars for it. And I picked it up and I was just kind of like, eh. You know, like kind of like not like that, but like just kind of like not interested. The price is too high, and he set and I set it back down, and he was like, you know what? He's like, I'll take less, and I was like, <laughs> and he was like, how about fifteen? And I was like, will you take ten? He's like, twelve. I was like, deal. You know, like just doing little <laughs> things like that. It you know yeah. it works like a good portion of the time. Um, and and Didn't like you scope about that. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched it live. You were. <laughs> You yeah, it was awesome. like, I didn't even have to negotiate that hard, but sometimes just like picking up the item and putting it back down and showing you're not interested, you know, does work. And I've, I've had really good success when women are like in charge of the garage sale. Usually like if it's a husband and wife, the, wom the, the, the woman, the, the wife is in charge yeah. of the money, obviously. And they're the best ones to negotiate with because they want to get rid of their husband's stuff. So if the husband wants 50 bucks for this GPS, you could probably get it for like way better deal because the wife just wants to get rid of the item. I've had so much success dealing with that, like <laughs> negotiating with women over men because the men usually are like have like maybe an ego or just want to be <laughs> tough, so they won't give you a deal. But the wife always win-win every single time. If you're at a garage sale and you're negotiating with the woman and you see the husband in the background and she gives you a good deal – Get out of there as soon as possible because I've seen so many fights go down where the husband realizes what just happened and he will snap on her so quick. So you got to get out of there. I, a handful of times I've been driving away and I'm looking back and I'm like, I might want to call the police. There might be like a domestic or something. <laughs> a troublemaker. That's funny. And I have one more tip too. When you're negotiating at garage sales, don't throw out the first number. Let them throw out the first number. Oh. Always. Whoever throws out the first number loses, in my opinion. Like, um, I'll give one more quick example. Um, I was at a garage sale um, at a trailer park, and um, they had a bunch of like items for like one to five bucks that were selling for you know fifteen to forty. And I bundled up like nine or ten items, and altogether it would have came to like twenty four dollars. And I, and this was when I was still new, and I was gonna walk up to her and be like, hey, will you take twenty? And then at the last second, I was like, you know what? No, I'll just say, hey, what's the lowest you go? She's like, I'll do nine. And in my mind, I was like, yes. But, you know, I almost threw out that number of 20 because I would have paid $24 or whatever the asking price was. I would have paid that because, like, I even got a tent in there that was worth, like, 60 bucks, And that was, like, break even on everything else. So always let them throw out the first number and then lower whatever they say. Like, if they say, say they have a game for $30 and then you be like, hey, what's the least you'll take for this? 
Um, I'll take 20. Well, I was thinking, I was going to say 10, but I'll do 15. You know, something like that. And then they're usually like, okay, and then you're good to go. You know, something like that. Just try like the different techniques and it works more times than not, I think. And that, that works the same on offer out that you, you mentioned. Uh, I had some items listed on offer out and the classic message I would get is, what's the lowest? <laughs> <laughs> what's the lowest? What's the lowest? So I would always come back with, feel free to make my offer. Because I've already said the price, it's the yep. balls on their court, you know? Exactly. I so I, I don't know, feel free to make me an offer. And, and a lot of people won't. And then I'll be like, all right, well, if you're, if you're willing, I always make it sound like it's a concession. So if you're willing to meet me at this intersection, and they're likely already closed because they're on offer up. So, but if you're willing to meet me here, I'll drop it to, I don't know, like 80% or mm-hmm. something like that. But... Yeah, those those little negotiation tactics definitely definitely work. Guillermo, when you're negotiating with a supplier to um, source a private label product from China, um, and you you're obviously you're going to ask them for the the PPU, the price per unit. Uh, when they throw out a price, say it's two dollars per unit, are you using some of the same tactics where you're you're going to try to negotiate with them, or are you is it a different? parallel when, when you're looking at negotiating with a supplier to source a product, uh, private label versus like a garage sale? This is definitely a, a Manny question, but one of the things that I've learned from him is you don't, you don't have the final say. You never introduce yourself as the CEO. You're like the buying agent. You are the, the uh, you're, you're lower in the, in the food chain. So if you introduce yourself as somebody that has a superior, then whenever they give you the offer, you're like, okay, let me, I'm trying to make this deal happen, but let me check with my with my boss, with my CEO. And the CEO is the bad guy that comes back and says, oh, he, he didn't buy it. The CEO so you, is a dick. He's always a yeah. dick. Always. He's so cheap. Denied. Denied. Yeah. But Manny, I'm sure you have a lot to add to this. Yeah, do they negotiate, Manny? Yeah, no, so, okay. I always say, you know, you should be talking to at least three suppliers, okay, um, on, on the same product, if you can, assuming you don't have such a unique product that there's only one supplier. But um, that way you have price, because sometimes you don't even know where the price should be, right? Because you're buying this stuff from China, and you're like, well, this, I think it's five bucks, but then you find out someone else offers it to you for three dollars. So I get, I start negotiating with all of them, and I make sure that my boss turns down everything. And they come back and they're like, you know what, I, I come back and I say, I'm sorry, but uh, your offer was declined. Um, you need to come back with a better offer. We're getting better offers from other suppliers. 100% of the time, no matter, it could be the best offer in the world. I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe they just gave us this crazy price. I'm like, decline. And they'll always come back. 100% of the time, they come back with a better price. It might not be a lot, but you know, it's something. And, and when you're dealing with private label, you might not think that 20 cents is a lot on a unit, right? Something that you're, you're spending five bucks on. But when you're dealing with, you know, thousands and maybe even tens of thousands of units over the course of the year, 20 cents starts to add up. And as you start going up in volume, then you can start bringing that price down. But eventually, once you start negotiating with three people, you can actually, uh, or three suppliers, you start to find kind of where that price range is, assuming they're the exact same product. And then you can then you can start using that. Uh, against each other, and you could say, "Well, this one's pretty good. You know, they're they're like ten cents lower than the other guys. It's it's pretty solid." Do you typically wait until you get the samples to start doing like the negotiations and stuff, um, or are you already kind of doing that before you get the samples, just like 
kind of talking with the suppliers at first? That's a good question. So it, it depends um, on if I've gotten any other uh, any other um, samples already. But typically, I won't order samples until I know where the price point is going to be roughly. Mm -hmm. And then once I get the samples, then I can use that as another negotiating um, bargain, or I, I can bargain with them a little more because I can say, you know what, I thought the product was going to have this or that, and it doesn't. So let's let's work on the price. Or a lot of times they can't work on the price very much, or they say they won't. But what you can do is you can actually have them. <coughs> throw in some extra stuff. You can say, look, I'll make this deal happen, but I want you to put an insert card into my package and put my logo on the products at no cost. Okay? Include it. I don't say at no cost, but I say, I'll do the $4 per unit, but it must include this, this, and this. Mm. And then they'll come back and go, okay, so now you just, if you were going to do that here, it would have cost you another dollar per mm. unit, but they're doing it for free. I've had whole, kind of complete packaging done for free by doing that uh, little tactic. Thank you so yeah. much, man. That that helped a lot because I'm right at that step right now in my process. <laughs> yeah, you'd yeah, be surprised uh, because like uh, Amazon charges you 20 cents to to apply the FN SKU, and a lot of people teach this in courses and things like that. They say when you go to private label, you know it's a pain to have the stuff brought out to you and then you to apply the stickers. So just you know have Amazon do it. It's only 20 cents, and I always say, well, 20 cents plus another 10 cents for this, another 20 cents for that. It starts to add up. So just talk to your suppliers. And just have them put the sticker. You know, you send the PDF file with all your F and SKUs yep, that Amazon yep. gives you. Sent to them, and they'll do it for like three cents. Or you can have them print it right on your package, your box, mm. for free. Why, why spend twenty cents? You don't need to. Thank you. Yeah, and I think uh, something uh, that came up in the group a, a little bit ago is people. First of all, they. They're concerned about the cost of the samples, so they want to negotiate the cost of the samples a lot, or they feel ripped off because, like, oh my gosh, this, this is a three-dollar product and they're charging me forty-five bucks. Like, the cost of the sample is is going to be really high, a lot higher than than the cost to to so source the product because they're not in the retail business. I mean, they they don't want people to go and and buy retail off of them, so that cost of the sample is going to be really high and you really don't have to worry so much about negotiating that. Then you of course want to negotiate the cost of the goods down and when you have, you want to try to bump them with the with the added value like Manny was saying, the labels, the printing, all of that good stuff. Uh, but the, what, uh, this lady was asking, um, so I negotiated and I ordered, let's say, a thousand units, I may be off with the numbers, a thousand units, but now whenever I just place a, a, another order for 5,000 units, they're only going down two cents. This is ridiculous. So if you've done a good job of negotiating at the beginning, then they may not have the margin to go down mm. a, a whole lot. I don't know if, if you agree with this, Manny, but I mean, you might get a little bit of better deal with with volume, but these guys may may be close to to their bottom line, and I, I yeah. would say if you start hammering down for for too much of a break, quality may suffer because they may compromise quality to to get to a price where they can continue to do business with you. Yeah, I agree, and I, I've gotten to a point where with one of my suppliers, you know, I'm. We're doing six figures with them in terms of us actually paying them, right? So we're one of their top um, top buyers, and I figured, you know, I've got some leverage now. So I, I sourced some other places, and I found something that was similar, not exactly the same because this company does does this unique uh, for me. 
and the other company was a little bit cheaper. You know, it's a couple dollars a unit cheaper, and I was spending um, upwards of fifteen dollars uh, per unit for this particular product. And so I went to them and I said, "Look, I need to get this for ten dollars." And they basically came back and says, "You know, that's way below our cost. We we just can't do it." And I'm like, "Well, if you can't do it. I might have to take my business over there." And they they were emailing me daily, daily, and daily, and they, <laughs> they they essentially could not go any lower than what they were giving me. You know, they just said, "This is our price." You know, we're making almost nothing on it, and they were about to lose me. I well, they weren't really going to lose me, but you know, they thought they were, and they just wouldn't budge on it. And that was going to be, you know, that would have probably been a I mean, well into the six-figure type account for them uh, for the year. So sometimes if you negotiate a really strongly initial, like he says, they just won't go down that much more. You can get the freebies thrown in. That's cool. Like if you want to redo your box and you're like, you know what, I want a color box that has, you know, my graphics and a picture of the product on there, all this other stuff. And for them, that's an extra, let's say, 10 cents or 12 cents or whatever it is that's gonna, it's going to cost them. They're willing to throw that in because they, I don't know, they, they do something with the company that's doing that. But in terms of actually reducing the cost on the product, sometimes you can't do it. Not below where you can kind of get. Awesome tips. Yeah. I want to know, I'm, I know, Guy, you might have a few more questions. And, I, and I, at some point, I guess we all got to get to our, our regular day jobs here um, for <laughs> sourcing stuff and getting products going. But I, I have a question, um, a little more fun, of, uh, a fun question. Are there any moments that stand out to you guys in terms of like these incredible moments you're like, oh my God, this just outlandish nutty things that have happened in your business. Is there anything that stands out? James, I'm, trying, I'm, trying, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of something. Or the, or the worst, was there ever a worse, like something that was just so terrible, you're like, man, it almost crushed you to where you quit. That would be, I guess, a more specific uh, question. Um, Let's see here. I've had a, I mean, nothing like, I guess, I guess my, I would say my first Amazon shipment that I did was like so hard because there wasn't no info out there. I almost like gave up and like said, F it, Amazon, I'm not doing this Amazon FBA crap. Like I was like, yeah, I, it took me like a week and a half of just nonstop BS, like stupid little mistakes. Like, you know, how do you, obviously everyone's done. It was just a big hassle. Um, you know, I've hit like a few roadblocks along the way. Um, I've had like money stolen from me out of my bank account. Um, I had like creditors like lean my bank account once. Like I've lost like well over 10 grand last year to stupid things. And that's when I couldn't afford to lose that type of money. You know, like they would come in and I'd have like, I had like three grand saved up in my bank account. I was saving for Q4 and a creditor that I had from like 10 years ago came and they took every dollar and negative my bank account. And that crushed me, absolutely crushed me because that was every dollar to my name. And, you know, I almost like had no option there um, luckily I made a few moves, like a few like somewhat riskier moves to try to get out of that. And now I'm a hundred times off better. Um, you know, so like when, like when bad things do happen, like see where you can learn from those things. Like I, I, I handled some of these bad things that happened to me very poorly with a poor attitude and it took me longer to fix these issues. If I would have had a better attitude, like I didn't see the big picture, like, okay, in six months from now, things are gonna be a hundred times better. I didn't look at that. All I looked at it was F this, this really sucks. What am I gonna do? I just should quit. You know, just look at it with a better attitude because things will get better. And especially if you handle these bad situations and you learn from them, you're gonna be a hundred times stronger a couple months down the line. So I mean just have a bet a good attitude. Like, I mean, seriously, that that is like so important in this business and any business, even in personal life or whatever you're doing. Is just yeah. have a really good attitude, even when shitty shitty stuff happens. 
Absolutely. I think anybody who's successful that says they've never failed, you know, I just haven't been crushed to the ground. Um, they're not telling the truth. I think we've all been there, right? I, I can totally relate. I was in a situation uh, when I was starting out my businesses where, you know, I was, the marshals were going to be up to evict me out of my place, you know, if I didn't have payment for the rent on Tuesday. And then my, I didn't have a car because it had already been repossessed and I was eating top ramen. And it was just, you know, it's one of those scenarios where, I guess for me, it just made me hungry. Not not the top ramen. But I was hungry for, for <laughs> business, right? Ramen, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I was hungry for like, man, I, I got to hustle. I got to do stuff. And, you know, and you either have it or you don't. You know, people that say, oh, anybody can go out and do this. That's not true. You know, you either have that, that gene, whatever it is, that entrepreneurship gene, or you don't. And um, if you got it, you're going to take some hits. You're going to take some blows. And it's uh, those that say, you know what, I'm not quitting. I'm going to turn around like you did, Jameson. Exactly. Probably have, you've done it, Steve, probably multiple times as well. Yep. you got to just get back up and keep going. Exactly. I was going to add to that real quick. Like how you said, um, I know a lot of people that watch my Periscope probably know my background. Um, but five years ago, back when I got like fired from Buffalo Wild Wings, I got my eBay account closed. I got evicted from my apartment. Um, I got addicted to uh, prescription pain pills and lost everything. I dropped out of college, got evicted from my apartment, lost everything, got fired from my job, got my eBay account closed. I mean, I had nothing. I was like in debt thousands of dollars to drug dealers that were looking for me to get their money and I had nothing. Like I was a complete loser, like straight up just loser. And this was like five years ago. And you can, and, and that's like you said, that this is why I'm so hungry is because I'm never going back to that life. I'm never going back to not being able to afford to buy to keep the lights on or to pay my rent, I'm not happy. That's never going to happen again. And, you know, find out what your why is and why you're doing this and, like, find out, like, where the worst situation in your life is and think about that every day. Not, in a sense, dwell on it. Like, in a sense, to make sure you never go back to that place in your life ever again. And it'll just freaking – you will have a fire. That's why I work really hard to get where I'm going and I know where I'm going is because I always think about that every day to a point almost even where it brings me to tears sometimes because I'm never going back there ever again and I'm going to keep on fighting to move forward. Nice. I think, I think it's important to mention, um, few people mentioned this, that um, this business is not for everybody. I mean, there's a lot of courses out there that they want to sell you into the, into the course. They want to they wanna get you to, to buy and, and just do it. It's super easy. But this, this entrepreneurship, being in business for yourself is not for everybody. Some people enjoy this, the safety of the paycheck, and they. I've heard number a number of people complain about their nine to five. Like, oh my gosh, I worked, I worked uh, sixty hours this week. It's like lucky, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like only sixty hours. I passed my ass. So it's, it, it's really cool. I mean, uh, we are seeing some really high sales figures, but uh, I can I can only speak for myself and, and I know Manny is also, I mean, working long, long, long hours and I'm sure you guys are doing the same. So I, I wanna kind of ground this because we've thrown a, a lot of really big numbers, but this is not like a get rich quick kind of thing. This is not a, a dirty business. This is, this is work, guys, I mean, it pays off, but it's work. Yeah, I think everybody here is hustling and grinding, especially you two uh, with, the, with the retail arbitrage. You have to, right? I mean, you, if you don't go out there for a week, 
you know, your business essentially stops for the most part, right? Yep. Exactly. exactly. Feeding the beast, as everybody says, you don't feed the beast, you don't get nothing back in return. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. Guy, and, and yeah. So Guy, do you have any other questions that uh, you think the reader or the readers, I keep, I'm always <laughs> messing up between what we write on the blog and, and, and the podcast and the Periscope and now this. <laughs> now we need to get the transcript, Manny. I know, I know. We're actually looking for somebody who can uh, write up all of our transcripts for, for what we're doing. It's getting to the point where we've got to start outsourcing everything, you know? <laughs> so if you're you listening and you write well, contact us. <laughs> contact us. No, uh, no man, uh, this has been a, a ton of value. I love these guys always putting out great stuff. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time to come hang out with us. It really means a lot, and hopefully it our... Our listeners, readers, watchers, and all the people that tune into us have gotten a lot of value. Um, I, I, again, if, if there's any, how do they find out more about Jameson and, and Steve? Jameson? Um, you can check me out on Periscope, Jameson Philippi. Um, that's mainly where I'm at. Periscope and Facebook, same thing, Jameson Philippi. If you have any questions or whatever, not, that's about all I got going on right now is Periscope and Facebook. And how much do you charge for all your golden nuggets that you give out? Um, nothing. I don't charge anything. Nothing, right? Awesome, man. And you, you Steve? Yeah, you guys can find me. Uh, probably the best place is YouTube. Just type in Raken Profit, R-A-I-K-E-N Profit, P-R-O-F-I-T. Uh, I've got about, I don't know, 700 videos over there. So that could consume your life for a couple months. Uh, Periscope, Raken Profit, Facebook, Instagram, Raken Profit. Um, just got done with a Connecticut meetup yesterday. We went hustling with a bunch of people. So um, I'm not hiding. If you guys want to hang out sometime, I'm, I'm usually uh, traveling and whatnot, holding meetups so we can connect. And I'd love to, uh, you know, share how I do it and help you out as much as possible. But, uh, yeah, guys, we appreciate, uh, we definitely appreciate talking to you. It was a ton of fun. Thank you so much yeah, for thanks. letting us come on your show. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and let me yeah, add one more quick thing. Um, yeah, with, uh, yeah, if, uh, I do travel around the country, um, pretty much living out of hotels. So if you want to watch me on Periscope and do a meetup as well, I meet up with Periscope people all the time. Um, so yeah, definitely check me out, hit me up for sure. Thanks for having us, guys. Definitely. Thank awesome. you. Yeah, Thank it's been you awesome. And, and also, if uh, anybody's watching this and they are not subscribers or members of uh, the AMPM group, um, you can go to our podcast website, and that's uh, we it's, we talk about recurring gener or re generating recurring revenue streams twenty four hours per day during the AM and the PM. Hence the name. So it's ampmpodcast.com, and you can find us on Facebook uh, through that website as well. Geek, any last words? No, just a big thank you to you guys. It's been fun. Yeah, it was awesome. And hopefully we can repeat this sometime. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on, guys. Really yeah, appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Really awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys. Take care. You've been listening to the AMPM podcast hosted by Manny Coates. For more information, insider, insider tools, tools, and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit ampmpodcast.com.